Matthew chapter 6. You follow along. I'm going to read this morning, beginning in verse number 24. We'll jump around just a little bit, and you follow me, if you would, students, this morning as I read. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 24. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Verse number 31, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, bless our time around your word, and may you free us from the ball and chain of worry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've always been intrigued with the history of preaching in whatever place it is. I've always been intrigued by the history of preaching in a church, the history of preaching in a college, the history of preaching in a denomination, or even the history of preaching in a country. You want to do an interesting study on preaching, you look at England and study the preaching that took place in that country in the 19th and 20th centuries. Undoubtedly, you will conclude that in the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was one of, if not the greatest preacher in England. Thousands of people came to hear him preach as he pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And in nice weather, they'd put the windows up and they they would pack the auditorium. People would stand outside on the streets to hear the words cascade uh, out, even though they couldn't find a place to be seated in the auditorium. But in the next century, there's a man that it would not be quite as well known to American Christians, but yet he had a powerful imprint in preaching in England, and his name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great expositor. His, uh, his, his multi-volume set on Romans, his multi-volume set on Ephesians are quarries of Bible study. His book, uh, Preaching and Preachers, is undoubtedly a classic, although it certainly reflects the tone of him pastoring in Great Britain and not in America. Martin Lloyd-Jones was preceded by a man that we preach about and use his material. His name was G. Campbell Morgan. They pastored a church for almost 60 years, the two of them, called Westminster Chapel in the heart of London, which is just down the road from Buckingham Palace. But Martin Lloyd-Jones was followed by a man who pastored the church for 25 years, and last Christmas I read his biography. When he got to the end of the biography, he told told about 25 years of ministry in the heart of London, but when he got to the end of it, he very transparently talked about some regrets that he had in the ministry. 
Some regrets, Dr. Getz, that he said, if I could go back and rewind those 25 years, there are some things we would do differently. And what shocked me was his transparency. And what surprised me was he said that although he pastored in one of the most well-known pulpits of the world, he said he spent 25 years worrying. What did he worry about? He worried about his messages. He worried about connecting with the audience. He worried about growth. He worried about finances. He worried about the future. And he said, as he wrote to future generations, he said, I regret as I look in the rearview mirror that I spent so many years of my ministry worrying. And he basically wanted people who would pick up his autobiography. And students, let me just say this parenthetically. If you have an opportunity to read someone's biography or someone's autobiography, always read the autobiography because it'll be rich in detail from the heart of the person who wrote it himself. He said, I wish, although I was in ministry all my life, that I had not been burdened down with worrying. You know what I believe with all my heart? I believe Dr. Rasmussen, Dr. Shetler, having worked with college students for years of my ministry, I believe there's a class not found in the curriculum in which many Bible college students enroll when they're your age. It's called worrying. They feed it, and it becomes uh, labeled with, with other prerequisites. As the psalmist said, don't fret. As, as Paul wrote to the church of Philippi and said, don't be anxious. Don't be, be, be careful for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I believe this morning that although I talk to young men and women who are here at one of the greatest schools on the face of the earth to train for ministry, I believe if the truth were known, as God looks down from heaven, he sees young people here who are encumbered on this Tuesday morning with the cares of life. He sees young people who as they look to the future, oh man, they're worrying about, who am I going to marry? Where is God going to place me? How am I going to afford this? How am I going to afford that? How are things going to unfold? And I want you to see this morning that Jesus, as he spoke to his disciples, as he spoke to those who would be Christ followers on the Sermon of the Mount spent a significant amount of time saying, if you're going to follow me and be blessed of me and be used of me, he says, you must determine that you are not going to give your spiritual, physical, and emotional energy to being a worrier. You say, Pastor, much how can I keep from being a college student. How can, who doesn't worry? How can I keep in the future from being a Christian worker who does not worry? Hey, thanks for asking. I want you to show you this morning in the text of Scripture from the words of our Lord Jesus himself 
the steps you can take and the application of holy writ that you can make to your lives at this time to not be a worrier. Here's a great truth about Bible college. This is the place where some of you will put tools in your life that you've never put here before, even though you've gone to Christian schools and even though many of you have grown up in good homes. Some of you have, will have never learned how to have a successful devotional life until you came to West Coast Baptist College. Praise the Lord, you've learned that. Some of you have never learned to share your faith until you came to West Coast Baptist College. Praise the Lord. And the the desire of my heart this morning is that you'll add another tool to the toolbox. And that is this morning, by the grace of God, you'll walk out of here to determine God helping me. I'm going to learn the principle of living in the presence of the Lord Jesus and trusting him implicitly because trusting God, which is a foundational truth in the Holy Scriptures in both the Old Testament and the New Testament and worrying cannot coexist in the life of a believer. Notice with me this morning why Jesus says we should not worry. He says, number one, we should not give ourselves to worry because of his prohibition against it. The prohibition of our Lord against it. Look with me in verse 25. He says, therefore I say unto you, take no thought. Verse number 27. Which of you by taking thought? Verse number 28, and why take ye thought? Verse number 31, therefore take no thought. Verse number 34, take therefore no thought. Student, do you know what that phrase can be summed up in two words that the Lord and Savior use repeatedly in the text? Take therefore no thought. He said, don't worry. Let me ask you a question. In November of 2016, a year ago, what were you worrying about? You say, Pastor Much, I don't remember. Of course you don't remember. The reason you don't remember is most of what we worry about never comes to pass. Lady was in her 90s. She seemed to be calm, cool, and collected. And she was asked why. She said, it's simple. When I works, I works hard. When I sits, I sits easy. And when I worries, I goes to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> May I say, leave your cares with God. And he will give his beloved sleep. Jesus said, by way of illustration, one of the things that people worry about he said in verse number 27, which of you, by taking thought, by, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? What's a cubit? 18 inches. Now, obviously, people in Jesus' day were just like people today. Not many of us look in the mirror in the morning and are pleased with what we see, particularly as Americans. When we're young, we want to be old. When we're old, we want to be young. Wherever we're at, we're always wishing things were different. Dr. Getch, I'm sure you preached at South Sheridan Baptist Church years ago in Denver. When I was a young pastor, 31, God called me to pastor my first church in Denver. And right down the street was this guy. His name was Ed Nelson. 
Ed Nelson was about his mid-60s at the time. When I was 31, Ed Nelson was tall and, and, and straight as a telephone pole. And he had this beautiful, white, wavy hair. He used to call me up on the phone. He used to say, much? Let's go to lunch. And we'd go to lunch. And, man, we'd talk about all kinds of issues. He mentored me as a young pastor in the ministry, and I loved Ed Nelson. One day I came home, and I said to my wife, I said, honey, Dr. Nelson is so tall. I said to Dr. Rasmussen today, how tall are you? He said, 6'5". I said, man, nice to be tall. I've had a lot of days in my life, Dr. R., when I wished I was taller. But I said to my wife back in those days, honey, Man, I'd love to be tall. I'd love to have white hair. She said, Greg, why would you like to have that white hair? I said, because if I had white hair like that, people would listen to me more. I'm so young. She said, Greg, sit tight. You'll get older. <laughs> hey, was she ever right? And now that I'm getting to that age that I'm 62, and boy, I'm starting to get white here, and I'm starting to get white in my head, and now I find myself walking through Walmart, walking down the, you know, the hair care aisle, saying, man, maybe I'll get some of that dye and change the color here. Because now that I'm older, I don't like having white hair. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said there was somebody in the crowd who said, Lord, I wish I was 18 inches taller. Uh, what circumstance, what relationship, what is there in your life, college student, this morning that just is I mean, a little bit out of your grasp to be able to touch, to be able to control, to be able to change? You know what? That's what we worry about. I grew up in the upper Midwest in Minnesota. I had a brother who was four years my senior, and he was absolutely a natural-born athlete. My dad and I would go watch him wrestle. We'd go watch him participate in track and field. And I was envious. Yeah, I was jealous. I was always a skinny kid. I'm being really transparent with you. I didn't like it. I longed to be athletic. And as Dr. Shetler knows, I don't have an athletic bone in my body. <laughs> One day, my brother would read comics, and he'd pass them on to me. And one day, on the back of this comic I was reading, there was a guy, advertiser, name was Joe Wider. And Joe Wider had, I mean, he had muscles on his muscles. Yeah. And they asked this question. Uh, are you tired of going to the beach and having guys kick sand in your face? Now, Dr. Getch, I was 1,200 miles from the closest ocean. But I read that ad and I said, yeah, that's me. I'm tired of having guys kick sand in my face. So they said, here's all you do. Simply send in this amount of money and we'll send you a box of weight gain. And basically, you're going to look like Joe Wider. I was about 12 years old. My dad was a businessman. He would have killed me if he knew I ordered it. 
So I saved my allowance and I sent cash through the mail and hoped I would get it. And, 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 and basically, every day I'd come home from school and next thing you know, I came and, then, and, and there was the box. Oh, man, I was so excited. Took it down to my bedroom, slid it underneath the bed and then that night before I went to bed, man, I pulled it out. You could mix it. It was powder. It was these cans of powder. You could mix it with orange juice. You could mix it with water. You could mix it with milk. You could mix it with anything. Anything you mixed it with, it didn't matter. It still tasted terrible. <laughs> And so basically, man, I, I don't know how many cans there were, 12, 14, whatever, and, and every night I'd mix it up with something, and, and, and then I'd go in the bathroom after I drank it. I'd drink it in my bedroom, but then I'd go in the bathroom, and I'd stand in front of the mirror. <laughs> now, why are you guys laughing so hard? Okay. <laughs> hey, I'd take my shirt off, and I'd flex those muscles. They never showed up. A friend of mine said, hey, what you need to do, Greg, is you need to lift weights. You need to eat weight germ. And basically, yeah, you're going to bulk up. Hey, I lift weights with him for a while. I never did bulk up. And you know what? One day somebody said to me, you know what? You're just going to have to accept the way you are. And as I went, continued my journey with the Lord, one day I read in Psalm 139 and verse 14, the psalmist said that I, but not just me, you, anybody who names the name of Christ, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you know what? I just determined I was going to stop worrying and I was going to stop complaining about the way God had made me and simply go ahead to serve God just the way I was. And it was liberating. And some of you young ladies are looking at other young ladies and wishing, hey, I was like her. Some of you guys are looking at other guys and looking at their personality and looking at their preaching and looking at their gifting and saying, hey, I wish I could be just like them. Remember what Paul said when he wrote to the church at Corinth, that when we compare ourselves among ourselves, we are not wise. Do not give your energy to be a warrior. Number one, because Jesus gives a prohibition against it. But I want you to see, secondly... He tells us what his provision is for it. He says in verse number 28, And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Yet they toil not, neither do they spin. Oh man, I just recently in Amsterdam, all these beautiful tulips, all these beautiful flowers. You know what? No flower wakes up in the morning and is concerned about the day. Uh-uh. They don't toil. They don't spin. He goes on and he says in verse number 26, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. And then he asks this question, are ye not much better than they? My wife and I live in Nashville. One night I went out to walk in a park. And as I was on the trail, an orange fox stepped out of the woods onto the trail. When the fox picked up my scent, the fox took back into the woods. Do you know what the fox was not doing? No fox in the woods says, hey, 
I've only got one home, but, but, but I need a beach home where I can go in the summer. I picked up a golden retriever in 2010 after we had a great flood in Nashville. And my wife is the Mother Teresa of the Animal Kingdom. Man, she loves to pick up pets and, and, and to nurse them back to health. And we had this golden retriever for a number of years. And then the, the golden retriever died. And I tell you, there was weeping and wailing in our house. But I'm going to tell you, the dog never woke up in the morning and said, Am I going to have enough dog biscuits in retirement? No bird in a tree looks across at another bird in a tree and says, oh my, oh my, our nest is not as big as their nest. What are we going to do? They don't worry. (laughs) My mom and dad in Minnesota had a lifelong dream. When they retired, they wanted to move to northern Minnesota and live on a lake. And God let it happen. We moved up to a lake called Tame Fish Lake. And on it was the Minnesota State Bird. Anybody know what the Minnesota State Bird is? No, no, it's not the mosquito. <laughs> no, no, no. I always say Minnesota is a land of 10,000 lakes, 5,000 fish, and a million mosquitoes. Yeah. Anybody know what the State Bird is in Minnesota? Ah, didn't think you'd know. You do over here. It's the loon, absolutely. Man, in, in Minnesota, they have loon contests. Do you remember that? You're from Wisconsin. You go up in a plane and look down on Wisconsin. You go up on a plane and look down in northern Minnesota. It's nothing but lakes. It's unbelievable. Loons have to have a certain amount of water. Loons mate for life. So on my dad's lake, on Tamefish Lake, there were two pairs of loons. An amazing thing would happen. In the fall of the year, we'd be out taking the dock out, out of the water and everything, and my dad would say, we're not hearing the call of the loon. He would say, they're gone for the winter. Now listen carefully. What happened? One of those days, if we could have been out with a telescope watching that water, we would have heard as those loons took flight off that lake. They would have gone up and caught the jet stream. And they would have headed south. Maybe one year they headed to Tampa. Maybe the next year they said, hey, no, no, we don't want to go to Tampa this year. Let's go to Corpus Christi. You know, I, I, I don't know. But here's the most amazing thing. They would go and they'd be gone for a prescribed period of time. And you know what people tell you, scientists tell you, who study loons? When loons come back, they come back, Dr. Shetler, to the same lake they left from. The same two pair of loons. So here they are. Months later, I don't know if they're in Texas. I don't know if they're in Mexico. I don't know if they're in Florida. I don't know where they are for the winter, but they're in warm weather. And suddenly, in that warm climate, on one morning, as those birds hit the jet stream and come back north, and then as they're flying along, they look down and basically Papa Loon says to Mama Loon, hey, that's Tame Fish Lake. Honey, put your chair seat up. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> We're going to begin our descent. And they land that morning on the water. Now let me ask you some questions. Why, Dr. Getch, when the birds leave, those loons leave in the fall, why don't they fly north instead of flying south? Why don't they end up in the frozen tundra of Canada instead of flying down to Corpus Christi, Texas? Let me ask you a second question. Why in the spring of the year when those loons, why, why don't those loons say, hey, we're going back to Minnesota. It's February 15th. Why don't they end up coming back to the lakes and finding them totally frozen and no place to land on the water? Why don't they get mixed up and go to another lake? May I tell you something? Scientists cannot answer it. Scientists cannot answer the question, who put the GPS in the loon? They can't answer, who put the calendar in the loon? They can't answer, who put the compass in the loon? Students on West Coast, we don't need the scientists to answer it. You know why? God Almighty has already answered it. The Lord Jesus Christ said, God put the compass in the loon. He put the GPS in the loon. He took care of the birds. And then he asked this question, Will he not take care of you? Are ye not much better than the loons? And the answer is, Why then, college student, are you beset with worry? He says, we shouldn't worry because of Jesus' prohibition against it. We shouldn't worry because of his provision for his children. But number three, we shouldn't worry because of his promise. Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 32, verse 31. Therefore take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Or who shall we marry? Or how should we pay for our tuition? Or how are we going to get this schedule worked out for the summer? Or how are we going to get there? Or what's going to happen in our health? You put in the question. He says, for after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Who are the Gentiles? The unsaved world. I sat with a man on a plane yesterday, and he was describing to me a blog that I needed to go on. We, he, he was a banker. And we got talking about the mortgage crisis and what happened back in 2008. And, and, and basically, as Wall Street bankers, you remember the man who went into his office, took the gun and put his, the gun to his head and blew his head off. Why? Because the economy went down. And the New York Stock Exchange crashed. Do you think this world, Dr. Getch, isn't running around worried about money? Do you think they're not worried about the future? You bet they are. Jesus said, these unsaved Gentiles, man, they're absolutely overcome with, overcome with worry. said, you're not unsaved. Here's the promise I give you. Verse number 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And most of these things I'll take care of. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and some of these things I'll provide for you. No. Seek ye first 
the kingdom of God. Say it. And all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow, Wednesday, Thursday, December 2018, the future shall take care of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We're coming up on a very special season, Christmas. When I was a boy growing up in southern Minnesota, my dad had ten brothers and sisters. As I told you, my dad was a scratch German baker, and so people loved to come to our home for Christmas. My dad made all kinds of breads, all kinds of candies, and it was a great time. The house on Christmas Eve was full of people. My aunts, every year, would call my mom. Somewhere around mid-October, and would say, what size are Brent and Craig this year? How much have they grown? We hated those calls. Because we knew they were going to buy us pajamas. We didn't want pajamas. We wanted a race car. We wanted a frisbee. We wanted a football. We sure didn't want pajamas. So, one year, my brother and I put our heads together and we went to my dad. We said, we have an idea. What if instead of all these individual gifts... What if he got the aunts and the uncles and they all went together and they bought us one thing? My dad said, well, what would that one thing be? We said, a Lionel train set. Now, you guys are too young to understand. Lionel at the time was one of the premier makers of electric train sets. My dad was a businessman, put his finger up to his chin and said, well, I don't know that we can do this. I said, my brother and I were like, Dad, you can do it. <laughs> so what would happen is uh, every day we come home from school, went to public school. There was no Christian school in our little town. And we were looking to see if there was any box that could be the size of a Lionel train set. Man, one day we came in and it stuck right back in the corner was this long box. Man, there was no name on it. We just knew it had to be a Lionel train set. Oh man, dad had come through. We couldn't wait till Christmas Eve. Now, if, if you're like us, you know, families develop these unusual customs for Christmas Eves. And, and one of our, so to speak, unwritten rules is that you couldn't open presents until all the dishes were done. My mom and dad didn't have a dishwasher in those days. Not many people did. And, and so you had to do all the dishes before you could open presents. Oh, man, I tell you, that, that, that year my brother and I were like, oh, man, Mom, we can't wait to get our hands in the suds here. You know what I mean? Oh, man, we want to wash dishes. And so... We help get the dishes done. 
We all went in the living room to open presents, and my mom had this rule. When you opened a present, you had to say who it was from, and then after you opened it, you had to go give them a hug, and if it was from your aunt, you had to give her a kiss and thank them and tell them you loved them. Uh, oh, you know, we, we just didn't like all that, but we had to do it. And so we started opening the presents. We were initially disappointed because it was another round of pajamas. Oh man, the ants had come through. And it was another round of, uh, Dr. Getch, if you don't mind me saying it, um, my mom gave us boys, had two brothers, she gave us the same thing every year for Christmas. Do you know what it was? Starts with a U. <laughs> Underwear! <laughs> Yeah, when my mom died and we had her funeral and all the serious stuff was over, I went to both my brothers and said, hey, you're on your own now. You're going to have to buy your own underwear. (laughs) I tell you, we went through that whole process opening the presents. Finally, there was one last present left. We went over to it. My brother said, Dad, there's no label on it. Oh, my dad said, I think that's for Brent and Greg. He went and pushed it out from behind the tree and pushed it into the center of the living room. And my brother, being four years my senior, I I mean, he was entitled to first dibs. He went and had a big bow on the top of it. Man, he yanked this bow and tore the wrap. And and my mom was sitting there, frugal German mother. She's like, save the wrap, save the wrap. You know, every Christmas Eve, we, we had different wrap, but had the same bows for 35 years, you know. <laughs> he pulled open the lid of the box and basically reached in, reached way down there, and man, pulled out a scoop shovel. It was my turn. Man, I jumped in next. And I thought, man, Dad's cunning here. He's put, the, he's put the train set clear at the bottom of the box. And man, I fished down and pulled out a second scoop shovel. <laughs> now, my brother and I, we didn't dare be disrespectful, but we looked at each other, and I tell you, the message of the eyes was, we just got ripped off. <laughs> when all of a sudden, My mother said, hey, Edward. Now, Edward was my dad's official name. But she only called him Edward when he was in trouble or when something real sweet was about to happen. Oh, man, there's no way dad could be in trouble on Christmas Eve. She said, Edward. He said, yes, honey. She said, isn't there one more box down in the hallway? He said, I think there is. Oh, man, we were gone. Woo. Hey, we, we just knew. It, it was a train set. My mom, she said, bring it back, boys, bring it back. I mean, open presents, presents is a spectator sport. And so, hey, we, we, we brought it in. It was a much smaller box. And he and I together started pulling the wrap off. We opened the lid and pulled it out. And guess what it was? Salt for the driveway. No, no, I'm, I'm kidding you, it wasn't. <laughs> we opened it up. It was a Lionel train set. My brother's 66. He and his wife live in Colorado in the mountains. 
But if you could go to their home tonight, you'd see a shelf with a few cars of a Lionel train set that represent a special Christmas. Listen carefully and we're done. You say, Pastor Munch, what does a Lionel train set have to do with worrying? Everything. When you go to Bible college and you study and you pray and you prepare and you submit yourself to God, there's something we never say, but there's something that happens. We sort of think that we can look down the, the, the highway of life and we sort of, although we'd never admit this, Dr. R, we sort of think we know what's going to happen around the bend in life. We forget that nobody knows but God. And in our enthusiasm, oh man, we've been trained at Bible college, and in our enthusiasm to serve God, man, we get out into life, and we get out into ministry, and the Lord says, hey, this is where I want you to serve me. And we're like my brother. Man, we ate the bowl, and we say, God, this being in the ministry is exciting. And we reach down into the box and say, oh, I know how life and ministry are going to unfold. God. I, I thought I surrendered to you. I, I thought I gave my life to you. You know I've been longing for a Lionel train set of ministry. I've been longing for this person to marry. I've been longing for this place to serve. I've been looking and waiting. And it hasn't unfolded the way I thought. Remember, God knows <laughs> when you need a Lionel train set. And God knows. <laughs> When you need a scoop shovel. But our God is only the giver of good things to his children. And all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And you remember that every day when the alarm clock goes off, if you get out of bed and say, God Almighty, you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. You are the giver of my life. You are the giver of my talents. You are the giver of my opportunities. And Lord, today, Today, I want to take all that you've entrusted me with and I want to put you first in my life and I'm going to trust you and when you give me a snow shovel I'm going to trust you and when you give me a Lionel, a Lionel train I'm going to trust you you know what you're going to find that the promise that no bank that no corporation may I say respectfully that no college and give you will be fulfilled if you'll seek God in his righteousness everything else will be added unto you 
God will bring things together in such a way that you'll say as his child, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. William Bennett put together a book on moral virtues, which he collected great literature from our land. One of the things he included was a poem by James Fields called The Captain's Daughter. It goes like this. We were crowded in the cabin. Not a soul would dare to sleep. It was midnight on the waters and a storm was on the deep. Tis a fearful thing in winter to be shattered by the blast and to hear the rattling trumpet thunder cast away the mast. So we shuddered there in silence while the stoutest held his breath, while the hungry sea was roaring and the breakers talked with death. As thus we sat in darkness, each one busy with his prayers, we are lost, the captain shouted as he staggered down the stairs. But his little daughter whispered as she took the captain's hand. Isn't God upon the waters just the same as on the land? Then we kissed the little maiden and we spoke in better cheer and we landed safe in harbor when the morn was shining clear. West Coast Baptist College student this morning, I ask you what wave is beating upon the ship of your life? Give it to God. What is giving you anxiety? Give it to God and claim His promise and your ship will land in the safe harbor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.